right through the pages of the Bible is this constant struggle taking place between the kingdoms of men and God's kingdom. We see kings who think that they can take on the God of Israel. I mean, think about some of the stories that you can remember from Sunday school. Moses going to Pharaoh and asking uh, that God's people be released and allowed to return to Israel. And Pharaoh denies that request. And he does so and makes a serious mistake. In fact, Pharaoh, Pharaoh was a particularly slow learner. There were ten plagues that were sent on him before he realised that he was in a battle that he would never win. Pharaoh thought that he could take on God, and he lost big time. And then you jump ahead to the Philistines, thinking that they can take over Israel because of the might of their Goliath. So God sends a child out to defeat him. We see another battle flare up in the book of Daniel. We see kings thinking that their God about to find out a really hard way that they are very mortal. So the point is this. God's kingdom will grow because God decided that it would. That's it. He didn't need to do anything else. He made the decision that his kingdom would grow. And in this section of Acts that we're looking at today, we see yet another battle taking place. Another king, another Herod, who is trying to stop the spread of God's kingdom. Now what makes this passage significant, and probably why it's been recorded for us, is that it's the first time that a ruler is persecuting the growth of Christianity. The first time it's the government that's standing in the way of Christianity growing. Up to this point, it's just been the Jewish religious leaders who've been trying to halt the growth of Christianity. But now things have been taken up another notch with this Herod wanting to slow down the growth of Christianity. But before we get to that, Luke tells us that the gospel has been, has, is really beginning to spread. Have a look at chapter 11 and verse number 19. We're reminded again of Stephen's death, which seems to have been a great catalyst for the spread of the gospel. Verse 19, chapter 11. Now, those who've been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen travelled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, Antioch, telling the message only to Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The gospel is spreading not just across borders, but it's now spreading across racial barriers. And look at what it tells, look at what it tells us in verse 21. The Lord's hand was with them and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. God is the one who's at work in all of this. The message about Jesus is being preached and people are placing their faith and their trust in him. News filters back to head office that there are now people who are not Jewish who are entering into the kingdom. So they decide to send someone down to check things out and they send Barnabas, who's exactly the right man for the job. And look at verse 20 to 22 in chapter 11. News of this reached the ears of the church in Jerusalem and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived, he saw the evidence of the grace of God. He was glad and encouraged them to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. 
and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Barnabas saw what was happening and was excited to see these people coming to faith in Jesus. He knew that the message about Jesus was not just a message for Jewish people to hear, but a message for the entire world to hear. The true Lord had come into the world to rescue and to save. And I love the way that it describes Barnabas there. It says that he was a man, a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. The Antioch episode that we have here is also another change for the growing church. Jerusalem will kind of no longer be the centre for the church. It will be Antioch that is now the important city because that's where the gospel will spread from right throughout Europe and much beyond. You've got to think that it would have been humbling for the people in Jerusalem because one of the last things that we read there is that the Gentiles in Antioch took up a collection for the Jewish church in, in, in Jerusalem. Uh, must have been humbling for them, for the boys from the head office, to receive this gift, having Gentile converts now helping them out and supporting them in a difficult time. But in the midst of all of this, we're also told that Barnabas took, this, took things one further step. He went to Tarsus to find Saul. Barnabas had met Saul some time before in Jerusalem, and it seems as though he was keen to work with him. And we're told that Barnabas and Saul spent a whole year in Antioch, meeting there with the church and teaching people. Now, this is a significant turning point because, as I said, Antioch is now going to be the base for this mission to the world. This ministry partnership between Saul and Barnabas will be what dominates the remaining chapters of the book of Acts. It's interesting, I checked this out during the week. Peter's only mentioned once more after chapter 12 just once on a visit to Jerusalem. And Paul and Barnabas will be the main characters taking the gospel to the rest of the world. But as we open up to chapter 12, the scene changes. We see, we switch from Antioch to Jerusalem and the focus is back on Peter. Serious threats are directed towards the growth of the church. King Herod, the grandson of the Herod who had all the babies killed at the time of the birth of Jesus, He's still wanting to hinder the growth of Christianity. King Herod seems to be the ultimate political opportunist. He's not concerned about what's right or wrong. He's interested in doing the thing that's going to be politically expedient. He's interested in doing the thing that will win him the most favour with the community. It seems that his hatred, that, that he was hated by the religious leaders, and as, as he began to persecute the growing church, they decided that they'll get on board with him. Have a look at chapter 12. Look at what it says at the start of that chapter. It was about that time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. And when he saw that this pleased the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. Herod had... One of the, I still bewilders me this. There's just one tiny little verse in here that tells us that one of the apostles has been put to death. He's been killed by the sword. We heard about Stephen before, but Stephen wasn't one of the apostles. He was just a table waiter. 
Here's one of the twelve, one of the, of the best friends of Jesus has now been put to death, and it's just covered in one little simple sentence. The person, uh, persecuting Christians seems to have been a bit of a vote winner. So Herod has him arrested, but it's just before Passover. I'm, I'm wondering whether he remembers what happened at that other Passover where there was this guy you might remember him called Jesus. So he's decided to wait till after Passover before he has him put to death. Peter puts, uh, he's put into prison and he has four guards with him at all time. But meanwhile, in another part of town, there's a group of people who are praying. Chapter 12, verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. And the night before he was put to be put to death, an angel appeared. Now, this is not going to be an easy thing to get this guy out of here. There are guards everywhere, and two of them are actually chained to him. Now, I've got a funny feeling that Peter is a little bit like me when he wakes up in the morning. Not really clear about where we are or what's going on or what day it is. And it seems as though it takes him a little bit of time to figure out where he is. So look at verse 9, chapter 12. Peter followed him out, that is the angel. He had no idea what the angel was doing was really happening. That sounds like a lot of my morning. Has no idea what's really happening. The angel leads him out of the prison, down the road, away from the prison, and then the angel just disappears. Peter finally wakes up and begins to realise that he's actually out. And so he heads to Mary's home, which is actually where the prayer meeting is being held. And look at what happens when Peter arrives at the house. Verse 13. Peter knocked on the door at the entrance and a servant girl named Rhoda came and answered the door. When she recognised Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back, without opening the door that is, and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. And when she kept insisting that it was so, they said it must be an angel. But Peter kept knocking, and when they opened the door and saw that it was him, they were astonished. When she heard Peter's voice, she ran in to say, Peter's here. And the whole Bible study group that were presumably praying for Peter's release from prison say it couldn't possibly be him. He's still in jail. It's almost laughable, isn't it? He comes knocking on the door and they refuse to believe that it is him. Now, while we might laugh at that, it does make me wonder about what we pray for in our Bible study groups, doesn't it? I mean, we should have confidence when we pray. Confidence that God can actually do extraordinary things. Luke gives us another glimpse into the character of Herod as well there in verse number 18. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what it had become of Peter. And Herod had a thorough search made of him and did not find him. He cross-examined the guards and ordered that they chapter closes with a little account of what actually happened to Herod. Luke tells us that King Herod was having a bit of trouble with the people down in Tyre and Sidon, so he organised an audience down there and so that he could listen to their quarrelling news about what they were not happy about. 
they, they were quarrelling with him, but then they realised that wasn't getting anywhere, so they tried a little bit of flattery instead. If you've got it there in front of you, chapter 11, verse 20, uh, sorry, chapter 12, verse 21. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robe, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. And, and, and it should say in there in brackets, and in a major attempt to suck up to Herod, they shouted, this is the voice of a god, not a man. Laying it on pretty thick there, aren't they? Some pretty major sucking up. Well, Herod seemed to enjoy that. And he sat back there in his royal robes, on his royal throne, lapping up the praises of men, basking in the idea that they're calling him a god. And then we read verse 23. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was beaten by worms. Herod is dead. Well, what are we supposed to do with all this? What's the take-home message from all of this? Well, I think this is what it is. God is in control. The kingdoms of men will never stand in the way of God's plans and God's purposes. And that ought to be a great comfort to anyone thinks that they're a follower of Jesus. We're on God's side. God will not let anything stand in the way of his plans and purposes for this world. But we need to make sure that we don't misunderstand what that means. Some people think that will mean that God is on my side, life will never have another problem. Some people think, with God on my side, I will never face hardship or suffering. That's not what we see in this passage, is it? I mean, the passage opens at the beginning of chapter 11, reminding us that Stephen had already been put to death, had been stoned by the crowd. In chapter 12, Christians are being persecuted, and even James, one of the apostles, is put to death. But let's be clear it's not that Herod is more powerful than God, it's not that this one kind of just slipped past God and he didn't notice. The fact is, God rules over all things. Humankind will never stand in the way of what God intends to do. Look again at that chapter 12, verse number 23. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. And then look at the very next verse. But the word of God continued to increase and spread. Herod's life comes to an end and the gospel continues to roll out. God's purposes will not be thwarted, not by the plans of Herod, not by the plans of the Jewish religious leaders, or anyone for that matter. That's the point that Luke wants to make in this passage in Acts. Herod's plans come to nothing. God's plans continue to roll on uninterrupted. God has a plan, and the plan is really simple. The plan is to see the message about Jesus preached to all nations. That's what's happening in Acts. That's what's happening in our world today. 
That's what's happening in Belmont today. God's plan hasn't changed in 2,000 years. It's amazing to see how God's plans can often fly in the face of world leaders. For many years, following Chairman Mao's rise to power in China, Christianity was virtually illegal in China. It's hard to know for sure, but they estimate that there are now more Christians in China than there are in the United States. Somewhere between 150 million and 250 million people are involved in underground illegal churches. And Christianity is continuing to grow, not by force, but by this message about Jesus that's passed on one person to another. If you had to come up with the take-home message of Acts 1 to 12, that's it. God is on about the gospel, bringing people into the kingdom through this almost ridiculous message about Jesus dying on a cross. And that's what we're on about. It may not always be easy. In fact, there will be times when it will be difficult for us. But that's the plan that God is rolling out. And that's what we need to make sure that we're on board with as a church, as individual followers, and as a broader church, that we too are committed to God's plan and God's purpose.